Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings. I just wanted to take this time to thank two donors for the past month or so. First up, we have Adam, who has requested to be known from henceforward as Adam, Landgrave of Rhineville. We also have Benjamin, who shall be known from henceforward as Benjamin of the Iron Princess Tarta. If you would like to make a secure donation via PayPal or become a recurring donor via Patreon, please go to my website at Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com and go to the store page. If you can't make a monetary donation at the current time, uh, please go to the Facebook page and join in the conversation or uh, send me a message on uh, Twitter or uh, just gave me a five star review on I, whatever iTunes calls itself these days. Thanks very much. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Hi, this is the second part of our two-segment crossover between the Agora shows Wittenberg to Westphalia and Tiny Vampires. If you haven't listened to the first segment of Wittenberg to Vampires, we suggest that you check that out first. Let's start where we left off, shall we? Let's come back to the subject of refuse, uh, which I mentioned before. Um, There's sort of two kinds of refuse that you need to worry about when you're talking about a large number of people living together. Uh, in, an, in an era before industrial packaging, you're talking about sort of general trash, but let's put a pin in that one. And the other one we want to talk about is human waste. Um, interesting story. My, my wife and I, our, our first anniversary, when we started dating, we, we went to a, a uh, waste treatment plant in, in uh, Atlantic City. Um, Romantic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> they have a, a, a it's a, cool wind generation thing that's co-located with the the waste treatment plant and they use it to power the plant but oh see see i found that find that stuff super interesting like anything tangentially related to public health is just completely fascinating to me <laughs> yeah, so i expected to, so i expected to learn a lot about the windmills but yeah the, the sewage treatment plant ended up being really interesting and uh for both me and and i as well so that was it was fun <laughs> Yeah, it 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 uh, it's it's that sort of thing that makes you know that who you're really meant to be with. <laughs> if you're both like, oh, yeah, well, then yeah, yeah. 
So um, people in the Middle Ages, again, knew that human waste was gross to have around and it smelled bad, so it probably wasn't good for you and you didn't want it around when you were trying to eat. So they would ideally, they knew that digging latrines in camps was a good idea uh, and then people could do their business and not have it impact the water supply or the food. Yeah, they probably didn't wash their hands, uh, but uh, in the world before germ theory, you sort of take what you get. Interestingly, they did wash their hands before they ate. It was just, so they didn't, and it was sort of backwards from the way we do it now, but that's whatever, it's fine. So um, the thing, though, with latrines is it's kind of hard and it's not all that glamorous. Uh, and so it was usually delegated to servants and slaves. Um, but I've read at least one source who noted that if there were no servants or slaves available, the latrines were simply not dug. Personally, I think it's fairly iffy that latrine digging would be high on the to-do list anyway. Um, and when you're talking about an army on the march, maybe they don't have time. So then if the latrines aren't dug, what, what do people do? Well, they just sort of sneak off into the bushes and, and do their thing out of sight. Um, convenient bodies of water were also very favored. Uh, in, again, in an era before germ theory, uh, if you think about it, if you put waste into a large enough water body, it no longer seems like a problem if you don't know better. It doesn't smell anymore, um, at least for the first few patrons. And anyway, it all gets you know washed away. So what ends up happening is that people use the river, uh, and many sources talk about you know passing armies seriously fouling rivers in their path, uh, especially if they have to cross the river. So then you have people marching into the water and stirring up all the sediment, and then doing their business and, you know, probably also dumping trash, general trash into the water. So all downstream, it's, it's very unpleasant. Yeah. Not to mention the animals also yes. walking through there. And yeah. yes. So given that the river was likely to be the only source of water for the army, um, Raven, what can you tell me about dysentery? <laughs> yeah. Uh, lo logical progression, right? <laughs> um, so anyone around our age uh, who played Oregon Trail has heard of dysentery. <laughs> uh, it's it's actually not one disease. It actually uh, describes a condition of having bloody diarrhea. Yeah. So it can be caused by a virus, bacteria, parasitic uh, infections. So it's, it's more of something that's doing damage to the intestines and causing this condition than it is... Um, like one single disease. So most common are bacterial and amoeboid. Um, so in our day and age, it, it usually isn't fatal, but for these soldiers, they were already suffering from conditions like malnutrition, like we already talked about, and um, many of them were sleeping on the ground. Their immune systems would have been in no position to fight off this assault and repair the internal damage that was being done by these pathogens. And um, as for the, the pathogen itself, um, it's, you know, like I said, it's either the bacteria or an amoeba. What it was actually doing is infecting the walls of the intestine. So to try to get rid of it, the body attempts to dislodge them by flushing water from the body into the intestines and then out of the body. So that's that's where this diarrhea comes from. And the blood is coming from the damage that's being done to the intestinal walls. Right. So uh, it results in severe dehydration. You can think like all that water is moving out of the body 
So, um, you know, severe dehydration, of course, and delirium and a coma and then death. So uh, a person that comes in contact with water or food supply that is contaminated, you can kind of imagine a cook. He doesn't wash his hands after um, using the bathroom. He already has um, this condition. And it can spread pretty quickly through the camp because all of these different people are eating this food, right? Yeah. And so um, after eating this contaminated food, uh, a soldier, camp follower, whoever, uh, would start showing symptoms anywhere from two to ten days later. And then in really severe cases would actually be dead within 24 hours. It's just, um, you know, like a sponge, it just sucks all the water out of your body. So it's it's really hard to to um, to recover from, which then, you know, I I can imagine it it makes things it creates this vicious cycle where people are, you know, trying to get more water and then contaminating the water uh, with their their illness as they, they try and rehydrate themselves. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly, and then they're they're also intaking contaminated water that's actually not going right. to help them at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so even if they didn't die, uh, the dysentery would have done so much damage to their intestines; it would make it harder for them to absorb nutrients from their food. So, if they didn't have scurvy before, then there's a lot more chance that they would get it now because their intestines just couldn't absorb any of like the little vitamin C that they were already getting. So our story for this illness, oh, man, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> Dysentery yeah. seems it's, horrible. It's, it's a nightmare. It's so common. It's uh, my sources say that dysentery is probably the second most common after like the nutritional diseases. And there's just so many, there's so many uh, leaders who end up dying of it, which we're going to see in a second, but it's just, you know, the, you think of these leaders and they're so dignified in the way that they present themselves. And then dysentery happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it uh, it's kind of an equalizer, isn't it? Yeah. So our story for this illness is, is fairly similar to the one for scurvy, and they seem to be pretty linked in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, in 1270, the king of France, who's now known as St. Louis, uh, turned the full force of his kingdom towards a crusade. He was actually fairly mad for crusading. Uh, he would try and go on several in his lifetime. And and actually he grew up during the Albigensian crusade, which is a whole nother horror show. Uh, But uh, as we discussed earlier, everyone was starting to suspect that just plowing your army into the Levant without any logistical support was a bad plan. And so the fifth crusade had sought to take Egypt, Um, but that didn't go well. So in the eighth crusade, King Louis decided to follow the inevitable logic already in place and attack slightly further to the West. In this case, he attacked Tunis, Um, which is in in northern Africa. He apparently thought that it was an important source of troops and food for Egypt, which it wasn't, and that the sultan would convert to Christianity, which he didn't. Uh, So none of this was true, but apparently he thought this because his brother, Charles of Anjou, told him so. Um, Charles is a a fascinatingly horrible character, uh, a real slippery snake, who uh, ruled in Sicily and southern Italy, um, which... We're going to be talking about him a lot more later in my show. Um, yeah, don't don't trust your siblings, folks. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, although uh, Louis had actually nominated him for for getting that land in, in Sicily and Italy, uh, but I'm going to get to that in you know a few hundred <laughs> episodes. 
<laughs> he was sort of building up this this little Mediterranean empire, and so he was interested in ruling Tunisia as well. He figured if, if his brother took over Tunisia, then, you know, his brother would march off to try and take Egypt and, you know, Charles could rule in his, his stead. There's some debate about this as the motivation, but that, that's the most common story and it, it makes the best narrative. So when the troops landed in Tunisia, the story was, was very similar to the story in Diomeda, uh, only more so. Uh, the army was stuck basically on the beach, but now it was in a desert reason, region and not just in a swamp. Uh, they were attempting to besiege a city with no support and with the surrounding countryside activated against them. Uh, they had a limited number of water sources and uh, dysentery broke out pretty quickly and ravaged the army. Yeah, dysentery is especially a problem in these situations with little fresh water uh, because people are forced to drink from sources that they would otherwise avoid right Right. yeah I, I i always think about that when i'm watching uh like lawrence of arabia there's the scene where he, he drinks water out of the well and like you see a little bit of the water and i, I always see it and go oh man yeah <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's not clear at all no that's not clean yeah. <laughs> anyway um so king louis eventually also got sick and died, uh, just like so many of his soldiers, but only he only did so after his eldest son died, which left the throne of France in the hands of the ironically named Philip the Bold, who was an indecisive and timid man fond of soft living. So not super bold. I can identify with that. He would incidentally die himself in 1285, also of dysentery, which he caught on campaign in a war caused, again, by his uncle, Charles of Anjou. Uh, but that is a story for later. Yeah, uh, not having enough water around is a problem, obviously, for, you know, for obvious reasons, but uh, too much can also be a problem. Pools of water and these swampy areas are favored breeding sites for mosquitoes, which brings us to Laria. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, malaria kills thousands of people to this day. It It is uh like even even those that don't die uh can become seriously ill right it's a tiny parasite that's transmitted by mosquitoes so after an infected mosquito bites a person uh the the parasite travels to their liver where it multiplies and then over time they leave the liver and they're so tiny they actually move into uh, the victim's red blood cells. Hmm. So inside the red blood cell, they have a very cozy home and they're not attacked by the immune system. So they just multiply and multiply until the red blood cell can't hold them anymore and the cell pops. And so they disperse and infect other red blood cells and this kind of is a, a cascading situation. Yeah. So this damage to the blood and the liver causes serious anemia, and for some people, it leads to death. Right. And particularly affects people, you know, in, in the situations that we're talking about, it, it affects people with um, less than perfect immune systems. Sure. But it's, it's also a huge problem. Like nowadays, it's a huge problem for um, small children and the elderly. So... You, you say that it's it's a parasite, um, and I've I've read that a bunch of times before, and it always um, I was always a little bit curious about that 
But like, uh, what, how is it different from a bacteria or a, a virus? If it's small enough that it's presumably operating on the cellular level that it's attacking red blood cells, is it a multi-cell organism or something? Or how, how is it a being a parasite different from it being a bacteria or whatever? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's a great question. Okay. So, um, the difference is that, um, these, these parasites are animals. So, uh, so if you think about a, a bacteria, it doesn't have a nucleus. So this is getting way back to like oh, basic yeah, biology. Okay. Um, so yeah. bacteria, it, it has, um, it doesn't have any organelles. Right. So right. it's, it's a different branch of life. Basically. Okay. Cool. Um, so, so these parasites are more closely related to, say, plants in that they have, um, you know, different organelles. They have like mitochondria and, um, you know, a, a nucleus and and all of that. So, okay. so that's what makes it a parasite. Whereas, okay. like, so say a virus depending on who you ask, they're not even alive. They're just just... packages of protein and DNA or RNA. Right. And then, um, and then you have funguses. So like a parasite is more like a fungus than it is like, um, like a bacteria. Okay, cool. Cool. Thank you. Uh, That's yeah. (laughs) All right. So, so that brings us to our example, um, Hmm. which is something we covered in my show, uh, quickly uh, and we're going to cover it again quickly but basically the, the romans in the roman empire had done an awful lot to control nature though exactly how much is open for debate um they never really controlled the rivers of italy but they made some attempts to do so they drained some swamps they did some channelization um, but more importantly they created roads and transportation systems that allowed swamps to be avoided much of this fell apart during the italian wars at the end of the roman empire Um, And equally important settlement patterns shifted. Villages, towns, and even cities just sort of up and moved because of the the political instability. And there's armies marching here and there and uh, lords attacking everybody. And so that they would up and move from these sort of fertile but upland areas in the plains into places where it would be harder to attack them. Many moved up into the hills and the mountains, but a few cities went the other way. And this was very important in the Po Valley in northern Italy. Most famously, uh, Venice is a city founded at the mouth of the Po River by refugees of various periods of invasions in different places in northern Italy. Now, these refugees were seeking a way to get away from everything that's going on uh, on mainland Italy. And so they built on islands, which are really not much more than sandbars at the mouth of this river. Um, They were technically as we get into the Middle Ages, a uh, possession of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, but they were very far from Constantinople, and they had a lot of uh, independence. When Charlemagne conquered Italy, uh, a dispute broke out over their ownership. They had, you know, back when the Byzantines had conquered Italy uh, under uh, Justinian II, they weren't really that important, but they'd been built up and built up uh, over that time. So now, now it was something to talk about. As disputes started to break out between Charlemagne and the Eastern Roman Empire, with Charlemagne famously claiming to be the Holy Roman Emperor, which made the actual, the people who considered themselves the emperors of Rome in the East somewhat cranky, um, you know, disputes broke out at the points of contact, which were mostly in Italy. So Charlemagne sent his son and heir apparent Pepin to lay siege to Venice, which was the, the closest and 
biggest, most important uh, point of contact. Pepin uh, did pretty well, I guess. Uh, he, managed, he, of course, had a very big, scary army of hairy Germans, uh, but also had something of a navy, and he managed to uh, sort of gradually conquer islands coming from the south and from the north. But they never quite closed the, the door. Um, they never quite managed to cut off sea access. They, they didn't have uh, the knowledge of the, the, the sandbars and the, the currents and everything that, you know, in this estuary is really tricky. Uh, and then also the, the Venetians, they retreated further and further into the estuary, into more and more uh, inhospitable terrain, and started driving stakes into the, the marshlands so that, like, at high tide, boats wouldn't be able to get by because they'd get their, their bottoms caved in and stuff like that. So it ended up turning into the stalemate where the, the Venetians had control of the sea and were able to go in and out because they had that local knowledge. And the the Franks sort of had the mainland and, and they were really closing in on the city, but they, they couldn't finish the deal. And so they ended up camped out on these these islands in the uh, this estuary at the mouth of the Po River, just sort of looking at each other, uh, trying to attack, you know, in the narrowest straits between the islands. Ultimately, the the Venetians, the, the, the folk story is that the Venetians, uh, during some of these attacks, would pelt the Franks with bread, which is to say that, you know, the Venetians were still getting bread. <laughs> they may have lost their mainland possessions, but they had boats going out and coming back with flour and bread and stuff. And they had enough that they could just throw it at the Franks just to be like, you're, you're not getting us. Yeah, the little psychological yeah, warfare there. Exactly. Um, so we have a, a large army of Franks who may or may not have been well supplied with food, uh, camped out on Sandvar Islands in the middle of a lagoon full of stagnant, brackish water. And then spring turned into summer. And Raven, can you take a good stab at what happened next? Mosquitoes. M- m- mosquitoes are what happened. Yes, next. mosquitoes are what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they, they're describing. I, I, I raise a lot of mosquitoes, and <laughs> I can tell you, they would love it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I don't know that any of the ancient chroniclers made the connection exactly, but they do describe, in at least one source, the, the mosquitoes are described as swarming. So um, mm. the army sort of predictably began to succumb to malaria. Uh, we're pretty sure it's malaria. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, that, that wouldn't be very surprising. Yeah, um, it, it's hard to make the, the con- to confirm it, uh, but definitely uh, diseases broke out in the summer and they were camped in the middle of a swamp. The Franks and Venetians ultimately hammered out a deal that, um, if you read Frankish historians, was very good for the Franks, uh, but the, it, this is sort of the starting point of the the Venetian conception of their corporate identity. And after this, there was a lot more unity going forward. Um, you know, the the Venetians paid a little bit of a tribute to the the kings of Italy, but basically, they were still technically a possession of the Byzantines. And as Pippin and his army withdrew, well, Pippin died a few weeks later of whatever illness it was that was probably malaria that was going around his army. Mm. Uh, Now, Pippin was the heir apparent to Charlemagne's empire. And any of you who know much about Charlemagne's empire sort of know what happens next. Um, The empire was left in the hands of his younger brother, who was a man who came to be known as Louis the Pious. Um, Many chroniclers felt that he was not really up to the task 
Uh, I've gone back and forth on this in my show, but the Frankish Empire ended up breaking up as a result of Louis's inability to control his own son's ambitions. Uh, even while he was alive, his own sons were like fighting over the empire, and he's just going, wait, stop, no. <laughs> yeah, a little uh, ineffective control situation. Happened. Yeah. So, um, so the malaria had a, a pretty big impact on the, the forward progress of European history there, uh, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it's it's one of those situations where uh, if if you just follow the history of malaria, you're basically following the history of like um, civilization and the halting of civilization in certain areas. Yeah. So uh, so so yeah, it's it's actually an incredible story that's that's of course still going on today. Yes. And, you know, we ha- we pour millions of dollars into trying to develop vaccines, um, medications, all of these things. You know, m- malaria has been with us since before we were humans. Yeah, yeah. And it's it, they were kind of like um, ancient mortal enemies. Yeah. And, you know, within just the, the span of my show, like it, it's an ongoing theme that these all powerful armies from north of the Alps during the early Middle Ages, they would plow into Italy, which seemed seemed like it was ripe for the taking. It's all these rich cities that are politically disunited and they hate each other more than they hate the outsiders. But these these armies would just come in and after a year they would just disappear. And, you know, it, it's hard yeah. to exactly tie it to malaria, but you know, the first thing you hit after you come across the Alps is the Po Valley, which is all swampy. And So, yeah, um, next we'll talk about um, everybody's favorite, the plague. Of course. So, um, naturally, we have to talk about the plague. Um, so, uh, otherwise known, of course, as the Black Death. Um, many people know this story. Uh, the infected rats were bitten by fleas, and then the infected fleas would bite people. Um, people spread it uh, to other fleas and then to other people also, um, which is called a pneumatic plague. And so, so yeah, most people have heard this story before, but what a lot of people haven't heard is the, the story of the plague from the fleas' perspective. And I think it really goes to understanding how the plague spread so fast and how kind of insidious it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so from the, the fleas perspective, which um, is, is like, like I said, key to understanding this. So the bacteria that causes the disease uh, blocks part of the fleas throat, which is called the proventriculus. So in a, a healthy flea, the proventriculus acts as a temporary kind of holding tank for blood that the flea is drinking. So fleas don't have teeth, and so they don't have any way to kind of break up the blood cells that are, um, you know, going into its digestive system. Hmm, So the proventriculus is kind of covered on the inside with these kind of sharp, um, almost hair-like teeth that kind of slice these uh, blood cells open as they float by and go into the flea's gut. Okay. So the the plague bacteria blocks the connection between the proventriculus and the gut. And so once it's in there, it starts multiplying. 
So then the flea tries to take a blood meal from a victim, and the blood goes in, goes into the proventriculus, but it can't go into the flea's gut because it's blocked. So right. it the the flea's kind of forced to regurgitate that blood and the bacteria with it into the poor victim. Right. So the flea is starving, which makes it bite more and more often. Instead of just biting when the flea is hungry, it forces the flea to always be hungry because it's it's starving it. So it's biting constantly, um, moving from victim to victim, trying to get a, a meal that actually satisfies it. Right, which and, it never will. <laughs> right, so since it never does, then eventually the flea actually dies of, dies of starvation, um, which accidentally you know, from the flea's perspective, is actually accidentally maximizing the damage done by the yeah. the plague bacteria. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty grim. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because uh, for most vector-borne diseases, like malaria, is um, it's not doing a serious amount of damage to right. the the mosquito. Um, well, not not in the same way as as this like the the flea is dying from the plague just as much as humans are right right yeah interesting so um one of the things that's that comes out of that is um for a long time it was thought that plague has to go rat flea human mm-hmm. um but there's some been some interesting research i found uh recently that um uh it was a team out of the universities of oslo primarily and then also ferrara and they did some, uh, and they published this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Academy of Sciences. Um, they they did some computer simulations about this, and they found that if the transmission path was only rat flea human, uh, then the observed spread of the illness was not explicable because the rats and fleas would die too rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of um, that, that's really interesting, because it means that once the infection started, the rats were probably no longer as important as a vector. So rat, flea, human, flea, human, flea, human, flea, human kind of thing. Right. Well, if you think about it, um, the the rats are also dying of the plague. So um, not to anthropomorphize, but uh, if you think about it from the plague's perspective, uh, you're killing off these rats and that's forcing the fleas to seek out another right. source for blood, right? right? And and then they're moving, in, like into human beds, and you right. know, mo- most of these fleas don't prefer to feed on humans. If they're, it's it's only when there's nothing else for them to feed on, right? And of course, you know, the fleas are are dying at a pretty accelerated rate too because they're starving to death. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So one of the 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 myths just before we move on about the plague, uh, and it's got this bizarre source uh, as a myth, but uh, it was suggested at one point that the reason that the plague sort of stopped being such a big deal uh, in Europe was that because the black rat was replaced by the brown rat in much of Europe, Mm. which um, basically 
is now considered it's sort of a bizarre theory to begin with <laughs> and this this whole thing with uh, it being proved that rats weren't particularly important after a certain stage is uh it sort of puts that myth to bed so i just wanted to put that out into this episode uh i'm gonna get back to the plague later in in my show but just um while we're on the subject <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to to separate history from the ecology of diseases because yes. they're so they're so intimately connected. Yeah, and so actually, one of the the points about that that's that's come up uh, in the last ten fifteen years of, of research, uh, the, these plague outbursts in Europe were linked to a cyclical population growth of like ground squirrels um, in, in Central Asia. So like sort of the Central Asian equivalent of prairie dogs and uh, pika. Um, mm. and, and so there, there'd be a wet season, there'd be a lot of food, there'd be a population boom, and these these animals would have the same fleas that would affect rats. And so then the, this, this wave of these animals would go out into human settlements, affect rats there, and then get carried out along trade routes. Uh, one of the interesting things in terms of the Black Death is that then what was going on in, in human uh, society at that time is that that's when the Mongols were were uniting essentially the Eurasian landmass by conquering this empire that went from China to Europe. What that meant, uh, and incidentally, uh, on the European side of this this equation, the 1300s was was a particularly vulnerable time. Um, so the the plague ended up arriving around 1350, and the Europe at that time had essentially. Uh, if you've people have been listening to my show know Europe had had about two centuries to recover from the instability of the migration period, um, which is what I'm using. Uh, some people call it the dark ages, but I don't think that's really accurate to call it that. Um, mm. So, you know, Europe had had two centuries to recover from, from the worst, worst of things. Uh, and cities had revived the, in the countryside, the population densities had begun to sort of outstrip the ability of the land to support them, which we know because we see human uh, settlements spreading out into forest regions, which were actually fairly economically valuable on their own, but uh, people needed food. So they started colonizing there. Um, and so, so you had a large number of people living together in these cramped urban environments. Um, some of them sort of living on the edge of starvation. And then, <laughs> uh, we get this, this sort of famous set piece where a Mongol army was attacking, uh, a bunch of cities in the Crimean peninsula that were held by Genoese merchants. Um, and the Mongols amongst, they weren't doing too well. So they started a, a plague out broke out amongst their army. And so they started flinging the bodies of their comrades over the walls using these big counterweight trebuchets that they had. And the illness took hold in the cities. The Genoese merchants got on their ships and ran away yeah. and uh, took the plague with them as they went. Um, it is probable that the plague came into Europe from several points, but that's less fun to talk about. <laughs> this this set piece is, is way more uh, dramatic, but the, historically speaking, it probably came in at a, at a couple different points. Yeah, that's that's one of those um, examples that uh, we we talk about as like some of the the first instance instances of biological warfare. Yes, exactly, definitely. So then once that happened, it spread out all along the trade routes. Uh, Italy, where these Genoese were going back to, uh, was the center of a huge European spanning, a continent, you know, a landmass spanning uh, trade network. And so it spread out all along these trade routes. Um, 
Let's switch brings us sort of to northern France. Um, starting in 1333, the empires of England and France were locked in what we would come to call the Hundred Years' War. Much of what we know about army camp life actually comes from this war and from the Crusades, both of which were sort of extremely well documented for whatever reason. So to finish up our look at army camp life, let's discuss um, the, the other kind of uh, refuse that we've been talking about in the camps of the Hundred Years' War. Um, food waste, litter, animal droppings, uh, everything that we would now classify as trash. Uh, they didn't have plastic wrappings or anything like that. But, you know, organic waste, things like that. In the cities, there was very little attempt made to collect and dispose of this kind of refuse uh, mostly it was just sort of thrown out into the street where it collected in the gutters and then was hopefully washed down into rivers. Uh, and every couple of years, it would become clear that this wasn't really working and they'd make some effort to change things and then things would go back to the way they were. Pigs. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some cities had dedicated trash dumps. Uh, and so th this is sort of the two options in the Middle Ages for how you deal with trash. You hope it washes away or you create an open air trash dump. Army camps probably did not function any much any better than the, the cities that uh, in their societies. Um, in most cases, trash was probably just tossed over the shoulder. <laughs> Particularly conscious leaders of well-organized armies might have arranged dumps if possible. Uh, but again, like the latrines, that would only be happening if you were in one place for a really long time. So in other case, the rubbish would not be disposed of in any kind of covered sanitary landfill. Uh, where it would be buried or something like that, it would just be open to the air. In the camp itself, um, we mentioned the army's carrying supplies of food uh, in terms of the livestock before, which, of course, would be bitten by fleas. But we also should talk about um, food wasn't you know, exactly being stored in cryo-sealed plastic sleeves uh, the, or you know, even some sort of tamper-proof metal or ceramic storage vessel. Um, Bags would be made out of animal skins or flax fabric that had holes in it, and it would be used to store and haul grain and other dried foods like that. Uh, dried and cured meats would be sort of just hung and, or stacked, and vegetables would just sort of be piled up in carts if they were available. Um, the carts would probably be covered to keep off rain, but really what we're talking about is food just sort of sitting there out exposed to the elements. Um, Raven, uh, what kind of creatures might this attract? <laughs> uh, what wouldn't it attract? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I mean, of, of course, we're we're dealing with things like um, roaches, uh, but there's there's also um, you know for for our purposes, the the rats would be right. probably the biggest problem. You know, they're they're fairly big and they would like consume a lot of it and then they're also contaminating it with um you know their their feces and urine it's uh yeah their their food supply would not have been uh yeah yeah very good Yeah, I think it's like so what impact. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, so uh, my my daughter is joining us. Uh, just so everyone knows, but so um, 
the the question is, uh, you know, what what impact did all this uh, this stuff with the rats and the fleas and the the plague that was spreading around Europe? What impact did that have on the Hundred Years' War? Well, let me put it like this: in, in 1347, the English won the famous Battle of Crecy. In 1348, the plague hit Paris and ravaged England uh, within a short time period thereafter. So, um, given given these. Uh, these, this lead-in. What do you think happened in uh, 1355? Uh, they put aside their differences and they focused on rebuilding their society and scientific pursuits. Yes. No. Oh, um, <laughs> that would be nice. But instead, if only. <laughs> instead, the English lost a massive chevaucet that toured almost the entirety of France and ended in the Battle of Poitiers. Uh, in fact, the war kept going despite repeated visitations of the plague until 1453. So as we covered the, uh, you know, it's probably not that the brown, brown, black rats were replaced by the black rats. Uh, we're most likely talking about a decline of plague uh, over time as resistance grew among human, rat, and flea populations. Um, but you know, plague essentially, despite uh, the, uh, despite or perhaps because of the lack of interest in it shown by the armies of France and England, uh, continued to be a problem right up until the 1700s. And uh, even then, the plague remained a major threat even to advanced societies until the, the advent, of, advent of antibiotics. And, you know, it's still around today. Oh, yeah. There's there's people that die of it every year, even here in the United States. So yeah. it's... Uh, but but now it's, it's more of an issue of oftentimes we don't recognize yeah. it for what it is until it's already yeah, done so much damage that it kills the person. It's, it's one yeah. of those... It's, it's a problem because it's so rare that yeah, doctors exactly. don't know what they're looking at. Um, you know, the last thing that they're thinking is, oh, my gosh, this guy has the bubonic plague. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting reverse issue. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, these are real illnesses, modern science and public health efforts have done a lot to help us with these conditions, but they still kill people. We only have eradicated one disease. That's it. And that's smallpox. And we're on the verge of eradicating guinea worms. But even then, you know, in in entire human history, we've only eradicated two diseases. So anything, all of the stuff that we've been talking about, these are still serious issues for you know, populations around the world, they are not that far away. And uh, so by learning about these historical cases, we not only understand what our ancestors went through, but it also helps us connect with what's happening with people around the world today. It, It makes us aware that they can strike anyone, regardless of their country. It makes me very thankful for the work of doctors, scholars, other health workers that have put their lives work into this to get us to the point that we're at now. And seeing how far we've come since the early modern period until today, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, for from my perspective, uh, historical cases can help us better understand what tools we can use as a society to prevent outbreaks in the future, which is something very relevant to me in my day job, as I I mentioned before. And um, it just generally helps uh, expand on the the themes and interesting points from history. 
So as a recap, today we talked about the scientific techniques that are used to determine which diseases people suffered from in the past. Uh, vitamin deficiencies like scurvy and night blindness causing the breakdown of soldiers' bodies on from a protein level. And this is what happened to the armies outside of Diameda during the Fifth Crusade. Uh, typhus, the louse-borne disease hidden in clothing and blankets. Uh, which is what happened to the armies outside of Baza during the last stage of the Reconquista. At dysentery, the intestinal condition that is made worse by a reduced immune system and in turn made vitamin deficiencies even worse. And, you know, not to mention the camp conditions in medieval armies. And, and that's what happened during the Eighth Crusade outside of Tunis. Malaria's destruction of the victim's blood and the mosquitoes that transmit it. Yeah, and uh, we talked about how King Pepin's army in Italy outside of Venice was probably in all likelihood destroyed by an outbreak of malaria, given that they were camped in a swamp. Right, and also the insidious ways that the plague is spread by starving fleas. And of course, that's the illness that failed to end the Hundred Years' War. So um, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm Raven from the Tiny Vampires podcast, a podcast about disease, science, and blood-sucking insects. You can find me at tinyvampires.com and on Twitter at tinyvampirespod. It was great talking to you today, Raven. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm Benjamin Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, which is the story of how Europe got modern. You can find me online at Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast at Weebly.com, and we have a nice Facebook page, and I'm on Twitter at W2W podcast, uh, W, the number two W podcast. So that's, that's my Twitter handle. And thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, thanks. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.